We've talked about 40% of the public sector carbon footprint coming from the NHS. Well, within that, just over 3% comes from the use of metered dose inhalers. So those inhalers that use a propellant to, to get the medicine into the patient. The UK has just seen its hottest July on record, including the highest ever temperature recorded of a 38 degrees centigrade in Cambridge. As I speak, the wildfires in Siberia are causing plumes of smoke, which is affecting the health of residents all the way over in North America. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. With fires and record temperatures, climate change is in the forefront of our minds. It's timely that we have two editorials focusing on the environment. And I'm talking to two of the authors of those editorials about sustainability and health. Firstly, how are the oceans and the seas linked to our well-being? Obviously through fishing and in the case of maybe a tsunami or other flooding, but there's more going on below the surface. I spoke to Michael De Pledge, Emeritus Professor of Environment and Human Health at the University of Exeter Medical School and author of the editorial, Time and Tide. Michael, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure. Now, your editorial, Time and Tide, um, has been published uh, online for a couple of weeks and it's in print this week uh, in the BMJ. Um, you're there talking about ocean health. Um, and I'm actually doing this interview from my home in Brighton. You might be able to hear some seagulls in the background. Um, yeah. Brighton became famous back in the Regency period uh, when wealthy people used to come down and take the water to improve their health. But I don't think, <laughs> you know, we might not drink seawater as a tonic anymore, but um, I mean, your editorial there really links uh, the ocean to, to human health again. Um, could you sort of take us through that that quick link? What's How does the ocean affect us? Yes, well, the I guess the most important sort of uh, issues at the moment are driven by climate change. And uh, we know that over the years, um, a vast migration has taken place of people to live um, from inland areas that have moved to live by the coast. And as you've rightly mentioned as well, lots of people like to spend time at the coast. And uh, in the past, the medical community have advised people to spend time at the coast uh, to improve their health and well-being. So here we've got a situation where you've got more and more people living by the coast at a time where climate change is resulting in an increased storm frequency, uh, in sea level rise, in ocean acidification. And so one of the things we wanted to do with the editorial was highlight the fact that um, the oceans, uh, as they become uh, more and more aggressive, if you like, are posing a, a threat to coastal communities worldwide uh, and in the UK, of course, and uh, to those people who visit the sea. Mm. And it's not just the sort of physical effect um, that that that's an issue here. Not just you know storms and 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 things. Um, there's a lot of biodiversity in the ocean, and that could have a direct impact on our ability to 
finds new, you know, therapeutic compounds and things. That's exactly right. I think, um, you know, if I wish to frame it in this way, uh, about 10 years ago, we set up a centre in the University of Exeter Medical School, but down on our Cornwall campus. It's called the European Centre for Environment and Human Health. And we were really trying to move away from the concept of um, public health or environmental health and study in detail the intimate interconnections between the environment, human health and well-being. And in particular, our focus was on the marine environment. Uh, Cornwall, after all, is a, a highly coastal community um, with coastlines not far from, from uh, where everybody lives. And so when we started making a list of all the threats from the marine environment to human health, it started to be quite a long list. We, we were looking, as I say, at climate change. We were thinking about biodiversity loss, the collapse of fisheries, uh, those, those kind of um, issues. But at the same time, we were well aware of the benefits to human health and well-being from spending time at the coast. One of the programmes that we started was called the, the Blue Gym. And the Blue Gym was really to encourage people who didn't spend time in coastal areas uh, to do so, uh, to start gaining both physical health benefits by being more physically active, um, thereby reducing their risk of becoming obese and diabetes and all the other things that go with it. Um, but also there seem to be a lot of mental health benefits. Most people who feel incredibly stressed, if you go for a walk on the seashore, we find that um, heart rates fall and stress hormone levels fall. And so at the centre, we've been doing a great deal of work to try and look at the cues and clues that we pick up from the marine environment that help us to feel better. So, you know, this tension between the threats the marine environment poses and the opportunities it offers is uh, been a very strong area of study for us. And it's actually spreading globally as a, an area of interest. Mm. And in your editorial, you mention um, the Sustainable Development Goals. Now, people listening to this uh, probably have heard me go on quite a lot about Goal 3, which is ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. Um, but there is actually uh, Goal 14, conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas and marine resources. Now, the idea of those Sustainable Development Goals is that they're kind of interconnected, that, that it's impossible to achieve one without the other. Um, do you think that is a, you know, the link between oceans and, and human health is something that we've been neglecting for too long? I absolutely think it's something we've neglected for, for far too long. Uh, around uh, 20 years ago, we, um, there was a, the third, probably the very first conference on the oceans and human health, a um, major international conference that was held in Bermuda. And uh, it was a little bit more than 20 years ago, actually. And at that conference, uh, things were highlighted like uh, toxic algal blooms. So when you get too many nutrients running off the land or being discharged into the oceans, it stimulates the phytoplankton, the little algae in the sea, to reproduce like crazy. And there are many different species there competing with one another, the different species of algae, and they start producing toxins to knock each other off. And unfortunately, those toxins get accumulated in shellfish and in, in, in swimming pelagic fish. And, uh, and then when we eat them, we, we get sick. So that was one of the drivers behind uh, an interest in oceans and human health. Other areas of interest were chemical contaminants, things like uh, mercury and cadmium, 
a variety of organic pollutants, uh, PCBs and, and those uh, well-known chemical contaminants. They were also contaminating seafood and, and posing a, a health hazard. And then there were the physical threats from things like uh, tsunamis. So that, you know, kicked us off uh, in, in that whole area. But I've been attending and indeed organizing conferences on oceans and human health, both in the USA and increasingly in recent years in Europe. And we get large audiences. We produce a variety of scientific papers. And the vast majority of them get published in environmental journals. But at our meetings, we get very, very few uh, medically qualified people attending, very few health professionals. And um, in fact, the BMJ editorial, I think, is one of the first opportunities we've ever had to really illuminate the um, impact that the oceans can have, both positive and negative, on human health and well-being. Yeah. And, you know, we are seeing that that impact. I mean, I'm, I heard recently of, uh, well, it's not recently, it's been happening for a while, but the story um, of what's been happening in the Faroe Islands. And, you know, there they traditionally... Um, catch and eat whale meat um but recently their chief medical officer has said you know guys we shouldn't be doing this the 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 levels of methyl mercury that uh, have accumulated in that whale meat are are so high that they pose a danger to human health yes i, I was uh, surprised um, to learn of this sort of recent intervention because i i thought that action had been taken maybe 10 or 15 years ago working with uh, professor philippe grandjean who uh, came out of the University of Southern Denmark, and he also has a position in Harvard, a very eminent figure. He and I uh, worked together on um, island communities, particularly the Faroe Islands, but other islands, for example, the Azores in the Atlantic Ocean. We worked on those communities, and his particular um, focus was on people in the Faroe Islands eating whale meat and there is some literature back then that demonstrated that the children of fishermen who were eating uh, bits of whale meat had uh, cognitive defects they were not able to um, for example draw pictures um, stick drawings of a human being you know or a, or a face they couldn't draw those things because they had cognitive impairment from the accumulation of both of uh, mercury but also pcbs taken in from whale meat and in many of the other island communities, islands off the southern coast of Italy, and as I mentioned, the Azores, uh, many of the fishing communities have high levels of mercury. Uh, one particular study we did in the Azores, we found that um, something like 80 to 90% of the fish catch involved uh, one species of fish, and the levels of mercury in that fish were not very high. But that fish was being overfished, and some of the other fish that were abundant, the second and third and fourth on the list, if you like, they were very rich in mercury. And uh, it was likely that they were going to be introduced into the food supply in a much bigger way, mm. posing a threat from, from mercury pollution. I mean, so there you go, mercury pollution and, and PCBs um, are, are one danger that people might, might not be aware of. Um, but there's another, you know, big impact on human health, which is disease. And uh, does the ocean, is the ocean tied up in that too? Yes, very, very much so. Uh, a few years ago, there was uh, tremendous interest in how cholera epidemics were being spread around the world, and particularly in coastal 
areas and and we've learned quite a lot about um, some of the the organisms that harbor uh, the, uh, cholera some of the marine organisms or, or estuarine organisms uh, seem to have cholera in their bodies and when they uh, increase in numbers very sharply with a, an algal bloom the, the zooplankton as they're called the tiny little animals feed on the plankton they, their numbers increase tremendously and this encourages um, a dramatic increase in the numbers uh, in, in the amount of uh, cholera uh, mm. bacteria available so that's one link um, and there was concern that when ships were taking in ballast water in one area of the world where perhaps there was cholera in these marine organisms, the ships then went to another part of the world and discharged their ballast water and was spreading, spreading the cholera around the world. Um, that was the work of a lady called uh, Rita Colburn, who used to be head of the National Science Foundation of America. So there's a whole history of, of work in that area. Another thing that's of great interest is sewage discharges into the ocean. Most of the sewage that's discharged into the ocean worldwide is not treated. And uh, that results in the spread of hepatitis and a variety of other diseases. So the number of people picking up hepatitis from marine products and from the marine environment is enormous on global scales, mm. with obvious knock-on consequences to hepatocellular carcinoma and other, other illnesses. I mean, I think, you know, recently with um, you know, Blue Planet and David Attenborough, uh, people might be aware of, of microplastics um, posing a danger. But, you know, and you've mentioned um, those and, and toxic algal blooms. But what are some of the, uh, you know, the biggest threats to the ocean? Well, I think, the, it, you see, that's an interesting question. Threats to the ocean or threats from <laughs> the ocean? Because, um, you know, any threat, to the ocean potentially has a feedback to be a threat to human beings as well because we're so reliant on the oceans for for so many things but um you know the sorts of contaminants that are getting into the oceans go way beyond the, the kind of fairly well-known mercury and pcbs one of the uh, really alarming areas at the moment are the per perfluorinated compounds the kinds of things that are used to spray on your carpets to avoid staining or on your curtains or on your sofa, flame retardants, those kind of things. A lot of them are ending up in the marine environment. They're, some of them, like the flame retardants, are very, very bioaccumulative. They accumulate to very high levels. And of course, when we're eating seafood, we're getting them back into the, the human food chain and into our bodies with potentially dangerous effects. Indeed, we, um, we wrote a paper few years back um, highlighting the fact that body burdens of environmental chemicals quite a lot of which might be accumulated from seafood especially in the large numbers of people living by the coasts worldwide especially in lower and middle income countries these body burdens of environmental chemicals may be uh, associated with changes in patterns of human disease so for example the chemical bisphenol a we know triples the risk of diabetes, heart attacks, and strokes when it accumulates above a certain level in your body. These perfluorinated compounds seem to double the risk of thyroid disease. These are associations, so we can't be definitive about them. And of course, these chemicals are not taken up just singly. They're, they're in complex mixtures. But we think this is a hypothesis worth investigating to see 
if the body burdens of environmental contaminants, much of which are taken up from the ocean, are indeed changing patterns of disease. Mm. And it's interesting, I've, I've seen some maybe speculative research about uh, the kind of accumulation of pharmaceuticals in the sea as well. So, you know, is our kind of healthcare system having this, this impact as well? Yes, it is. And uh, again, in our centre, Professor Will Gayes, who's been uh, a pioneer in looking at uh, pharmaceuticals entering the environment. Of course, humans, human use, medical use is not the only source of pharmaceuticals in the environment. About half the pharmaceuticals, at least in the USA, um, probably come from use in veterinary medicine, where they're sprayed about woolly nearly into the environment and uh, end up in the sea. Uh, and my, my colleague, um, Dr. Matt White, who's co-author of our editorial, has been leading a, a major study in Hong Kong looking at the emergence of antimicrobial resistant bacteria in coastal waters and looking at people's attitudes to that. He and Will Gaze have been uh, doing this work um, and looking at people's attitudes towards it. Mm. So um, I think the emergence of antimicrobial resistance in coastal waters and in bacteria is of great concern. Another one of the authors, um, my colleague, Professor Laura Fleming, she hails from the USA and did a great deal of work in um, in Florida, looking at the beach communities there and found that there are antibiotic resistant bacteria uh, in the sand in there that are picked up by children and they pose a threat sometime later in their lives. They sort of you know, live on their in their bodies uh, for a long time but if they become immune suppressed sometime in the future or have some major infection then these bacteria seem to to get going again mm. i mean the picture you're painting here is pretty gloomy and um i suppose it's this this idea of kind of out of sight out of mind with the ocean that you know everything flows into it uh, and then it sort of you know is dispersed um and that means that you know maybe tackling this is is quite hard. There's there are so many sort of avenues to which um, the ocean well poses a danger to our health and and we pose a danger to it. So what can we do to start actually tackling this? Is anyone doing that already? Um, Ye yes, they are, and I'm I'm delighted you you made that point. You, you're right that um, this whole issue of the catalogue of um, threats from the environment to uh, human health and well-being, to our coastal cities, to our coastal communities, to people who get their livelihood from the sea. Uh, that catalogue of um, threats, biodiversity loss, climate change, and so on and so forth, the pollution, uh, that it really is quite, quite frightening in one way. But I think the way to uh, frame it is to say that by, by us becoming more and more aware of these issues, then we can really start to do something about it. Now, you mentioned plastics a moment ago, and our use of plastics is globally is still accelerating. But measures are now being put in, in place to stop the use of um, microplastics in cosmetics, at least in the UK. Uh, plastic bag use, as we've heard recently, has halved in the UK in the last few years. And I think the message is spreading around the world. Plastics are partic particularly interesting because they're uh, highly visual uh, contaminants in the environment. We know where they are and people can do something about it. They can collect it. And, uh, you know, that's the visual stuff. If we can start to make people aware that for all the, the visual plastic that they see associated with it, 
are a vast array, array of environmental chemicals, from industrial chemicals to pesticides to pharmaceuticals to nanomaterials and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's great. And as you, you say, you know, that um, societal attitudes towards um, plastics have changed incredibly quickly. Uh, yeah. And, and so that's, there is maybe some, some positive to that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right. And I think the other interesting thing that's emerged is that people do care much more about their health and well-being now. People are, despite the battles we have against obesity and about mental health issues, there, there is in some sections of society at least a great desire to be fitter and healthier. More people are engaging, I think, in, in water sports, um, we see, as I say, more people moving to live in coastal areas. Um, more people are visiting the coast than ever before. So they are acquiring benefits. We, we did a study a few years ago using self-reported health, which seems to correlate quite well with real health. So if you feel sick, you probably are sick. And mm. if you feel healthy, you probably are healthy, you know, at some, some level. So we had a scale of, say, 1 to 10 for people to report to do, do self-reported health and we did it by postcode so in the end we were able to plot a map of self-reported health versus proximity to the coast and to other water bodies and we found that people who live within a kilometer or so of the coast had a, a much better self-reported health than those living further away at least in the uk so we don't know how that extends around the world but it would be an interesting area to pursue Michael painted a pretty bleak picture there, though, at the end, one with some hope for change. As with all sustainability, individual action is useful, but we have to really look at the various systems we've built up in order to make significant change. And our healthcare system is one that can play a role too. Gillian Leng is Deputy Chief Executive and Director of Health and Social Care at NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. And she's also the author of a new editorial about what the NHS can do to become more sustainable. Gillian, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Interesting, important topic. The first thing I thought when I read your editorial though I suppose in, in retrospect it's kind of obvious given that the NHS is our single biggest employer. Um, the thing that struck me was that 40% of public sector emissions in the UK are produced by the NHS. Yeah, it, that's that's right. It's a really, really significant proportion and therefore there's a really good opportunity to reduce that uh, carbon footprint. We know that most of it comes from medical equipment, and pharmaceuticals, they're sort of about 12-13% of that, but there are a lot of other areas that add up that we could really make a difference. Mm. And, and within that, a difference is actually already being made. The NHS has managed to reduce its carbon footprint by 18.5%, while increasing its activity by, by almost 30%, and that's that's pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. That reduction occurred over a 10-year period and lots of effort went into that. And the, the, the risk, I suppose, is that we've 
done the easy things first and that it's going to be much harder to keep that level of improvement going. Mm. And when I say easy things, the easy things are about heating, insulation, lighting, all those sorts of things that require power and you can cut down relatively straightforwardly. But thinking about what we do in the next stage to carry on cutting that down is going to be much more of a challenge, which is why NICE has become interested in this topic, to think about what we might do to encourage that. Were you at NICE involved in getting that initial reduction? Well, we do, we do work with the Sustainable Development Unit and we have done things internally in NICE as an organisation. We've also reduced our carbon footprint, reduced our waste, reduced our use of plastic. So we've been contributing our bit to the wider picture and we've been thinking about, in a, in a broader sense, what NICE can do through its guidance and advice to help the NHS to do more in the future, mm. to be sustainable. So you mentioned already earlier on that pharmaceuticals and devices are around 12-13% each. So cumulatively, that's a fairly big chunk of the remaining carbon that we need to reduce. Now, obviously, our devices and pharmaceuticals are really within NICE's purview. So at the moment, when you're looking at drugs or, or devices, do you actually think about sustainability at all? At the moment, we don't. We are aware, obviously, of the significant contribution to the carbon footprint from pharmaceuticals, which largely comes from manufacture. We have been thinking about what we might do in future. And one of the areas of interest that seemed like an obvious thing we could highlight was the carbon footprint of different types of asthma inhalers, which are highlighted in the editorial. And happy to come on to that but there's a wider question of what more NICE might do in the future and there's various stages what we haven't got at the moment is a really good way of measuring the environmental impact of drugs and pharmaceuticals that let us draw comparisons we haven't got a good way of measuring we haven't got that data I'd really like to be able to encourage and incentivize the industry the manufacturers to start recording that and if they gave that to us we could at a minimum make it available to the NHS so that they could see and make their own decisions. Perhaps at some point in the future we could build that into our appraisal Mm. and that could be really powerful. As you probably know at the moment we look at value for money so we look at effectiveness, we look at cost effectiveness, we don't look at impact on the environment and whether impact on the environment would ever override the benefits to patients is is debatable but it might just be one of the factors that might make clinicians choose one thing over another. All of that sounds really good but it's going to be really hard um, and at the cold face when you're writing a prescription to balance I don't know you know this is much more effective but it's got a huge environmental impact versus you know this is less effective but it's it's more sustainable. How do you think that balancing up could actually work? It's a really interesting question. And at the moment, we have this metric that people will have heard about the cost per quality. Perhaps in the future, we'll have a cost per impact on the environment measure that sums it all up. That would be great. I can't imagine, though, a future where we say no to a really effective, cost-effective new drug that's going to have benefits for patients, even if it's got a significant impact on the environment. That seems hard to imagine. 
But we could have a scenario where we have two or three drugs, all with that new benefit to patients, but one of them has much less impact on the environment. And then, a bit like the inhalers that we were talking about, and then you would be much more likely to use the thing that has the low impact on the environment. Mm. So that's where I think this knowledge is going to, to make a difference in future. You mentioned inhalers there, which you've picked up on in the article itself. Um, it's a surprise how big one medication, just inhalers, how big the environmental impact that they actually have is. Yeah, indeed. Well, we've talked about 40% of the public sector carbon footprint coming from the NHS. Well, within that, just over 3% comes from the use of metered dose inhalers. So those inhalers that use a propellant to, to get the medicine into the patient. And that is about the same as the carbon footprint of staff commuting, to put it into context. And you could probably readily imagine the carbon footprint from people driving around getting to work being quite significant. So to say it's the same as that, I think is quite, quite powerful. So can we do more? Should we be doing more to reduce the use of those inhalers? And I think we can, because we prescribe relatively more than other European countries. So in the England, 70% of the inhalers we dispense are those metered dose inhalers, and only 30% are dry powder inhalers that don't use that, mm-hmm. um, don't use that type of propellant. Whereas in other European countries, it's the other way around. Mm. And we are keen to raise awareness of that. We're keen to get patients and clinicians both thinking about the need to use those inhalers with a propellant. And there will be some patients for whom it's important, but often not. And so we should, in future, try and reverse that trend that we have here. And you also mentioned in the editorial anaesthetic gases, which are particularly potent greenhouse gases um, and could potentially be swapped without affecting patient care. So, yeah, people should go online and read all about that. But say we have this idealised future where NICE is able to recommend based on clinical effectiveness and cost effectiveness and uh, environmental sustainability. How would we get there? What do we need to actually do first? Well, I think we need standard ways of counting the environmental impact, whether that's through waste or air pollution or carbon footprint, need some standard ways of of counting. And we need to incentivise manufacturers to start providing that. Mm. Because although it's it's nowhere near our process of formal evaluation at the moment, we could, when we look at new medical technologies, at least provide some information if it was there. So the key challenge to to us and internationally, I would suggest, is getting this information available because everybody is now interested in knowing the impact on the environment and we often don't have that information. So at at a national level, perhaps even internationally, we need to be working at this and making it a requirement. Do you actually ask for that information? We have started to ask for that information. We 
produce uh, we produce advice called medtech innovation briefings for things early in the life cycle of development and implementation and we've started asking for environmental impact for sustainability data and it's uh, it's not available at the moment so for people listening who agree with you perhaps and think this is something that the NHS more broadly all the different departments should be doing where do you think movement needs to actually happen next where do you think who do we need to get on board uh, to make this change i think it's a combination of regulatory bodies like like nice and the medical and healthcare regulatory authority it's a combination of government departments certainly the industry people like the sustainable development unit we probably all need to get together and to consider what the challenges are of providing this information and what is going to stimulate encourage it actually happen mm. you know at one end of the spectrum is a very um, you know very strong mechanism through some legal requirement but we might not need to go anywhere near that it might be that people recognize this is an important really important for for the future for the nhs but for the planet you've been listening to michael de pledge and Gillian lang talk about sustainability and health now those two articles time and tide and a more sustainable nhs are both available on bmj.com and i'll as always add links in the podcast text that's it for this week, but we'll be back next week with another one of our Talk Evidence podcasts. So if you want to hear Helen McDonald and Carl Hennigan rant about EBM, then subscribe if you haven't done so. Um, also, if you enjoy it, please do review us. It helps us kind of stay up with the iTunes rankings and, uh, and helps other people to find us too. So until next week, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.